Here we are with Shanti Deva again. Hold on to your seat. He's going to tear us apart. First, he's going to tell us that you're not the center of the world like you think. And then he's going to tell us that you don't exist like you think you do either. <laughs> and we came here to hear that. Yeah. And then in the middle of it, he sneaks in, and you have the Buddha nature. So then you think, okay, okay, yeah, maybe. And then he pours on the other stuff some more. <laughs> okay. So let's um, begin vi visualizing the merit field and all the sentient beings around us. So, uh, yeah, all the sentient beings, whoever, not just human beings too, but you can think of beings in, in all the six realms and what they're going through right now. You know, like we're sitting here very comfortable and uh, throughout the universe and just on this planet, people are uh, undergoing so many different experiences and uh, in so much mental confusion and fear about how to handle these different experiences. So, and we are too sitting in the middle of that mess. Okay, so to uh, help ourselves and others, we're turning to refuge and generating bodhicitta. So all those beings in so many different places throughout the universe having their own experience right now. We are connected to all of them. So we shouldn't think, oh, they're a stranger. I don't know them. They live somewhere else. In fact, I don't even know if they exist or not. I mean, even these big creatures at the bottom of the sea, I've never seen them. Do I know they really exist? What about beings in other realms? 
so we may have that doubt. But we may also have some understanding that due to our actions, particularly our mental actions or motivations, that our mind can uh, influence us to take such rebirths, can create such uh, kinds of bodies. And so just like us, uh, the beings in so many different realms, so many different experiences, they're all exactly like us. We're not separate and uh, from them and unable to understand them, are unable to relate. And in addition, they've all been our kind parents in previous lives. They've all helped us in one way or another through their other activities in previous lives and in this life and in all of our future lives too. We will receive help and aid from others and dear beings. So it's really uh, rather unrealistic in our own mind to make a, a big uh, gulf between me and them when there's so much similarity and when we've received so much benefit. So just as we try and uh, create good conditions for ourselves, let's do that for others too. The best condition, of course, is attaining full awakening and to help others with that, of course, we've got to attain it ourselves. And so with that motivation, we're going to uh, greet Shantideva with a smile. So uh, this week I received uh, two emails from people here who had some very, very good questions. And so I thought to discuss their questions and uh, hopefully open it up and get other people to share some of their ideas. Uh, how to put this? What I say in sharing my ideas, uh, it's not 
way everybody has to think. And I'm sure it will um, push some buttons and some people won't like it. Um, or the people will think that I don't have enough faith or uh, things like that. So anyway, there are things we have to look at in our practice. So I want to talk about them, especially uh, because other people brought them up. Okay, so one was a question from Venable Nawang. There you are. You aren't wearing blue anymore. <laughs> I keep looking for you in blue. You weren't there. <laughs> um, and the other was from Venerable Sumpton. Uh, your, your question, you rewrote it a little bit from what you said. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So I thought I would um, read, you know, what people wrote because um, they're expressing their thoughts. And then contribute uh, hopefully something that is worthwhile because both of these kind of um, yeah okay so uh, so um, you know uh, now I'm yeah just was saying he was talking about um, how we started talking about the method to equalize self and others, and uh, how Shandy Deva's way is more general and in seeing how beings benefit us. It's not like the seven point cause and effect method in which we are, we want to help them because they've been our parents and they've been kind to us and so on. Okay, Shanti Deva's one is they exist, they're exactly like us, and they've been kind to us, but it, it isn't a personal way so much, you know, as it is with, some, with a friend or a family member or something like that. So he says uh, that he was trying to figure out how the meditations on equalizing and exchanging uh, self and others relate to the verses in Shantideva's text. And he said, I was easily able to find examples of similar ideas for all the points of the, the nine points, except the point of the kindness of others, which is the fourth point of, of the nine. So I began reviewing the entire text for mention of the kindness of others. So there are, of course, many verses of the kindness of our enemies, and he listed them. There were a few indirect references to the kindness of others who aren't our enemies. Okay, and he had two example verses for that. But I couldn't find a single verse that mentions the kindness of others who are ordinary beings uh, directly as the main purpose of the verse. Okay, there are, of course, verses about the kindness of our teachers and of holy beings. So, have I missed something? So, this little investigation caused me to reflect on why Shantideva would not have emphasized this, the kindness of others, as a reason to generate love and compassion for beings. 
Okay. And then he puts some forth some ideas why, you know, I mean, this is such an important point. And how come there's no I, verses that directly say, think about the kindness of others just in, in the sense of whatever they're doing in society, whether you know them or not, that you're receiving benefit. You know, there's, you know, Shanti Deva, what, what, have you just been eating, sleeping, and going to the bathroom? You didn't put any t verses in about that. <laughs> So he has some ideas, and I had some ideas too. So, uh, so the first one was thinking of the kindness of our family and friends could increase our attachment to them. Definitely. Okay. And that's why uh, when you look at the Theravada method, which is not really different from our method for generating in the four measurables, when you generate immeasurable love, yeah, and uh, you don't do it towards somebody that you're very close to, because attachment usually arises, and then that becomes a hindrance. So um, Buddha Gosa usually advises a teacher or somebody who you, who you respect that you're not real close to, so the attachment doesn't arise. Okay, so yeah, if we sat around and thought about the kindness of our friends and relatives, very easy that attachment comes. So that could be one reason he didn't mention it. But on the other hand, you know, we've got to deal with that attachment sometime. <laughs> yeah, and not just avoid the issue by not thinking about it. Because the people that we feel closest to are also the people that we get the angriest at, you know, and the people we're most disappointed in. So they're not like always a, an object of attachment. Okay, but but that's one reason that that he could have. Um, the second one, venerable now, I thought about was thinking of the kindness of only certain beings with whom we have a close relationship could hinder our ability to develop equanimity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what we do um, all the time, isn't it? Yeah, we think of the kindness of the people who are close to us. And we think of the, you know, the kindness of the people who give us, us gifts, who remember our birthdays, who praise us, who tell us how wonderful we are. Um, so thinking of their kindness again, um, yeah, it's not going to get us over the hump of our, of our uh, partiality and our bias, which you can see are really important elements of generating love and compassion in the Mahayana tradition, that they've got to be generated for every single sentient being, omitting none. Because if we omit even one from our bodhicitta, then we don't have bodhicitta, which means impossible to attain awakening. So it's really important to include everybody. His other idea was thinking of the kindness of others 
towards us specifically doesn't eliminate our self-focused attitude. Yeah, very true. Yeah, they were kind to me. Therefore, they're wonderful people. <laughs> and I have a little bit of affection for them. But if they show their kindness to somebody else, you know, especially somebody I don't like, then I'm in big trouble. Okay, so all these reasons are still, you know, uh, they're, they're showing how that partiality comes in. You know, so he's saying maybe Shantideva didn't want us to get into that kind of partiality. Um, my thought on this about why he didn't mention it is because the kindness of others and the way we depend on others is actually quite obvious. Yeah, and why does he need to talk about it when we experience it day in and day out? And then I thought some more about that. Why is he talking about it if we experience it? Then I thought, okay, what's was society like in uh, ancient India? Yeah, uh, you lived in your village. And the people there may not be related to each other, but they function together because they all depend on each other to stay alive in a village. There's no government that's going to come to your aid oh, if there's an earthquake, if there's a flood, if there's a drought, you know, uh, you just, your, your whole way of being is interconnected with other people and you help each other you know if you're a farmer you've got to help uh, with what everybody's doing so that everybody can eat yeah and i thought well, how come for us this is such a big point you know and i because i see that i you know, I always talk a lot about this, about the kindness of others. Why, if Shantideva didn't think it important enough to mention, am I going on and on about it? Okay. And I think it has to do with the difference in our cultures. Okay. In Asian culture, your identity is as a member of a group. Yeah, you are part of that family. Um, just even talking about the kindness of your parents and so on, you grow up with that in an Asian family. Okay, and your identity is linked with that family. Um, if you belong to a clan, your identity, you are linked with that whole clan. Or with that whole village in Tibet, you know, if you were going to ordain, you went to the Kamsen, uh, where the, you know, all the monks were from your area of Tibet. You know, why? Well, you're interrelated already. Yeah. In the West, and this is probably a function too of, uh, you know, the, the, religion here, but also the industrialization here, and a lot of the social philosophies here, especially capitalism, our identity is 
get ahead for yourself. Work for yourself. Be unique. Yeah. Aren't we all supposed to be unique? Yeah. And we're supposed to, uh, it starts when we're very young. You know, we've got to have our favorite color when we're four years old. Because if we have our favorite something, then we are different from other people. You know, and and we will get gifts in our favorite color. I mean, and and you get get gold stars. I mean, you're a little cop kid, and you're you're going to daycare, and you get gold stars if if you were good. So there's so much emphasis on uh, standing out, but in a conformist way. Yeah. You've got to stand out and be unique, but conform to the way a whole group of people is standing out. You get what I mean? It's, it's like, yeah. So you've got to be in, you've got to be in with the latest group that is uh, challenging everything. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, this emphasis on always being unique, my ideas. Yeah, in school, writing about my ideas and my this and my that and having to, you know, like, like in Singapore, you have to have a CV when you're like four years old to get into the good kindergarten so that you can get into a good elementary school and a good middle school and a good high school and and a good and then go to university yeah and then if you have a university degree especially one from another country then you've had it for life you're on the top tier you know you have social recognition you've made it you're good you're rich and then you can do the same thing for your kids Okay, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, this whole, that whole emphasis of, of sticking out that, that we, um, sticking out in a good way, you know, and looking out for ourselves in capitalism. What do you do? You look out for yourself. And if, you know, you can make the extra buck, you do. And, uh, yeah, you do what you can get away with till somebody, you know, calls you out on it. And so it, it, our conditioning so much in this culture is, uh, I look out for myself. What's that, that phrase? Like, you know, if I don't look out for myself, nobody else will. So we've got to look out for ourselves first. Yeah. And so because that is so prominent in this culture, then we need a lot of teachings and a lot of meditation, thinking about how we exist in relationship to everybody else and how we've received benefit from everybody else. Yeah. Because... uh you know, if you're used to seeing other people as competitors, you don't see them as, have, you know, benefiting you or as kind. You see them as wanting to do better than you. Yeah. 
And then we, of course, want to do better than them. So, so that's, you know, one idea. Maybe for Shantideva, you know, at his time, it was so obvious. Yeah, how if you're going to stay alive, you need other people. But now, you know, even though the same is true, we need other people. But when we th go to the grocery store and get this and that, or we go to the clothing store and buy things, we don't think about the people involved in producing those goods. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember being when somebody started at one point talking about the sweatshops in, in Bangladesh. I was like, oh, yeah, I started looking more at the labels in my clothes and where, you know, and the furniture and the carpet and everything else. And where was this made? And what was the conditions of the people making it? And I was like, oh, I had never thought about it. My usual thought was, do I like this, this article or not? Is it useful or not? I didn't think about, you know, all the people involved in producing that and their experience. And when there was a big fire in one of the sweatshops in Bangladesh, it really woke me up. It's like, oh, these are the people who are making some of the things that I wear. Yeah. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, my own grandma worked in a sweatshop in New York. It's like, oh, this is, you know, this is really the kindness of people and their experience and how often these people are overlooked and taken advantage of. Yeah, the, mi the migrant workers, you know, same thing. So, um, yeah, so that was one idea I had about, does that make some sense? Okay, so I'd like to hear if other people have more ideas about why Shanti Defa didn't mention this directly. Your, what you were saying about culture made me wonder, like, how, like, how do we uh, reflect on the kindness of others and come to the correct Dharma conclusion? Because of the force of my attachment to family or like the, I've been thinking a lot about like Chinese ancestor worship. Yeah, I did grow up with a deity culture but it's like you're responsible to everybody in the same surname going back to the village and once a year you go and you pay respect to them um, on the plane i met this woman who um, is filipino and her daughter is marrying a chinese man and the mother is the mother-in-law is so upset she made her son kneel in front of all the ancestors because he's not marrying a chinese person mm -hmm. so, i, I kind of get where that comes from and it's terrifying you know so if you don't have the right way of thinking about how to repay the kindness of your parents uh, and your fam and the ancestors or whatever. You get into this hole of obligation and guilt and it's not at all actually repaying their kindness. Yeah, I've, I've dug that hole for myself many times. And, mm -hmm. you know, so to have some distance from that uh, is for me is deeply necessary to work out what is the correct conclusion. Otherwise, I would not be ordained. Yeah. I yeah. have two children right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you would be telling them to make sure to do all the 
uh, funeral rites when you die and to teach their children to make offerings on your grave and yeah mm -hmm. kindness that we receive from family and friends is usually more like this life assistance you know it's material things and so maybe shanti deva wants us to get out of that mindset mm -hmm. think of more about the spiritual kindness that we've received see kindness more in, in that sense yeah that's when you think about the kindness of your teachers and you know people like that uh if you're thinking of the kindness of the people who make the roads then again it's things of this life but it's people we don't know who who are putting their energy into that yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how um, easy it was growing up to uh, blame parents and blame the people around us of what they've done. So it's like, for me, anyhow, I had to figure that all out and get that clear and quit doing that and generate inside the clarity about the kindness that they offered me starting with life and then from there and that's to me the jumping off place then to start uh enlarging that idea of kindness of others to others around and strangers and the people that provide services etc so if if i hadn't done that initial work with the close ones with my parents yeah i would never have been able to go to the next step i think i'd be stuck in that yeah yeah so maybe people uh the method of uh the seven point cause and effect method may be very good for people because you two are, are saying something very similar and it would be very good for you to to see that uh yeah, that the people close to us have also been kind. Because I think in some way, um, dear Mr. Freud, uh, you know, he, everything, all of our troubles, why our parents did this or didn't do that. And then, you know, from there you get uh, the inner child movement, you know, because your parents did this or they didn't do that. And so... Um, yeah, like you said, we have to work out the issues with the people we're close to, but, um, yeah, and then spread that, you know, that ability to feel uh, appreciation and affection to others as well. And I think, too, part of the process also is after a while to get your mind out of just this life and start thinking exactly. of, uh, uh, past and future and then that allows one to bring in all of the participants that uh, benefited yeah yeah so that could be another reason uh maybe why why uh well hmm. No, to really see the kindness of others. And that way we have to work through the whole thing of rebirth. Yeah.
and have some understanding of rebirth. Otherwise, kindness in the past and future lives, we just gloss over. Yeah. But if you really think of, um, oh, what Geshe-la was was talking about last week, did you notice how he went through all six uh, perfections and saying how they were all necessary for even the precious human life that we have now, let alone everything in the future? And, uh, you know, thinking about future, what we did in the past lives, what will become of us in the future lives. Yeah, then of course opens us to think of, um, yeah, who did we practice generosity with? Who did we practice uh, ethical conduct with? And so on. I was wondering if it's uh, part of the monastic trainings in that culture of, um, I think um, he's very highly bond from the king class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that uh, emphasis not to go back because Indian families are also very sticky. <laughs> yep. And especially if your son is leaving, it's, it's, I think they are more hysterical than the Chinese, possibly. <laughs> we could have a competition. <laughs> well, I think the Indian mothers are scarier. The Chinese mother needs space. <laughs> well, the fathers too, you know. Yeah. I read something once that I really felt was very true for me anyway that relates to this. And it was two points. The first one doesn't, but the second does. But I think they're both true. The first was that in our culture, people from the middle class tend to have romantic notions about romantic notions about how relationships should be. And they also tend to feel entitled to things. And the first one I think is, you know, we never grew up with child marriage or arranged marriages or any of that, all the music we listen to. But the second one, I really think is very much related to this point. Like, why should I thank anyone else? I'm entitled to all this stuff. You know, everything comes our way. We're in the middle. We do our work. Everything comes. The water runs. The, you know, we have our new clothes every year for school. Who's there to thank? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much we're entitled to it. Yeah, so where did that come from in, in our culture, that sense of entitlement? Yeah, is that part of the um, Industrial Revolution and then the workers' movement? Because the workers didn't want to be exploited, you know, so they felt we were entitled to some of the profit of the country. company, too. We're entitled to good working conditions. And th- th- that kind of entitlement's completely valid. But I wonder if, you know, that set us taking over somebody else's land. <laughs> oh, that's going a little bit too far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're sticking up for your rights. And then there's, you know, the sense of entitlement. But in, 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 you know, old cultures, there was no sense of my rights. Yeah. There wasn't a sense of these are my rights. I would have to think that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant 
paradigm that the whole idea about creator, savior, redemption, that there's an exclusivity that seems to have fallen into the white race mostly that says, you know, God will take care of you if you believe in him and you follow his, you know, commandments, you have a special place in the world. You have special domination in the world. You have a special, you know, whatever. Because it, it's because what we're looking at now in our country with this incredible paranoia about this race critical theory thing is that the white folks they're they're feeling undermined because the entitlement is getting challenged by people who are asking for a fair share. Yeah. So I think a lot of just this idea that we were that we were born special under the the love of God and somehow whether you were raised like that or not, it's kind of endemic in our thinking that white folks have kind of, at least in this culture, have special privileges due to the fact that Jesus loves us. You know, he wasn't white. I mean, he got changed. He got changed. I mean, oh. I mean the adaptation of Jesus yeah. to make it work for us, I think, is... You know, because I always felt like God, even though God, I was inherently evil, I was also kind of special. I was inherently flawed. I was also kind of special. <laughs> okay, just a couple more comments, and then I want to go on to the, the next question here. Okay. what I would suggest that if you think you're special in the eyes of God, there's no reason to be thankful for other people because you're better than they are. So as long as you think you're better than other people... There's no gratitude. Okay. So I think it's also an Asian culture thing whereby um I've been speaking very much only about this. Like when we live in community, we don't just think about self, we think of the whole group as a big picture. Yeah. And then um like even when we are walking on the road, the, the lights came off, we will just pick it up and fix it. We won't say just mind your own business and we just walk. Yeah. I think it's like we, we work together. And also there's a difference between um how they use the lead here, like you are the lead, so you tell people how what to do, how to do it. But in the Asian culture, it's like you are the lead, we do it together. So mm-hmm. there is a sense of togetherness, but compared to here, it's more like, oh, you, you, it's a hierarchy thing more compared to a group thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I see that um, difference here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's burning back there. This is the last one. It's from Venable Jamba. Uh-huh. She's saying, you know, why doesn't he talk about depending on others? Um, and he, she says that he was speaking to monastics when he, gave this um, treatise and when one ordains it becomes very obvious at one point that your growth as a monastic depends on others other monastics and practitioners their precepts involve to the most part other people that we live and relate with and learning to live with different people of different cultures makes us grow and then she says he also teaches that patience can only be developed with others and this way we will become the person we really want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's true. When you become a monastic, then, you know, you're and you're living in community and our precepts concern our relationships with people in the community and so on. So that stretches us, which is why 
you have outbursts of your self-centered thought. <laughs> yeah, anybody here? It's like, why is there this precept? You know, why is there this guideline, this rule? You know, it goes against what I want to do. Yeah. And so that's part of the the rock tumbler, isn't it? Is that idea needs to get uh, knocked out of the ballpark um, for us to really practice. And it's difficult because it's well entrenched in our minds. Yeah. So when you encounter somebody who just looks at you and says, no, then you can maybe put a, you know, tap them on the shoulder and say, are, are you having a, uh, <laughs> are you being assaulted by your feeling of entitlement right now? <laughs> Remember, that's an enemy. Just give it up. <laughs> What you said? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could take that in? If you know somebody says that to us, so if we could say, "Yeah, you're right." You know, I do feel it, and I am entitled. <laughs> no, that's not something I'm trying to generate in my mind anymore. Okay, then the second email I received. It's about a different topic. Okay. So saying there is still a lack of clarity on my part about making prayers as a Buddhist and making prayers as a non-Buddhist. Because we talked about, uh, you know, we talked about that last time and, you know, so the king of prayers is a clear example of a Buddhist prayer or aspiration. It describes aspirations of cultivating virtue, benefiting others, purifying, becoming a Buddha to benefit others in this in future lives. So it makes kind of, those, those are, are uh, we call them prayers, they're actually aspirations, but they really, um, there's something that enhance our practice and really um, uplift us to try and, and really get some feeling for what those aspirations are and to lead our life in the direction of, of aspiring as, as the holy beings did. Okay. At other times, making prayers our aspirations for others to be relieved of their suffering seems like we are calling out to holy beings to do something while we, the requester and the requestee, do nothing. Okay, so may so-and-so recover from this illness. May, you know, my business go well. May my kids marry the appropriate people. May I get the promotion. Um May I have a good uh, relationship we have when we pray for people. There's these categories of things that we aspire for them. There's a good health, good as um, what? Peaceful, calm, mind, heart. Oh yeah, peaceful, kind, kind heart. Clarity and wisdom. Clarity and wisdom. 
Yeah, removing obstacles. Huh? Yeah, harmonious relationships. You know, um, wealth also. I mean, that's one of the main things. It's not written because you don't want to say that, but that appears too greedy. So you, yeah, harmonious relationships. That to have a harmonious relationship, I have to make a lot of money. So it really means make money. And then, you know, okay. Um, but her idea is that, uh, we're dedicating for things, uh, for people where it, it's just like asking the three jewels to make this happen. Okay. And in the meantime, we're, we're not doing anything. We're not aspiring for anything. We're not, our, our practice isn't being stimulated. It's just worldly things and, you know, essentially may people have all the worldly things that they want. May they be happy in that way. And so saying that's quite different than something like the, um, the King of Prayers. So there is a fine line here in moments that it sounds like asking for miracles. Pray to Tara and you will get your visa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, uh, you know, pray to Tara. As somebody, you know, pray to Tara that my upcoming test turns out, you know, cancer-free or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, that's a funny one because whatever's in your body, you know, is not going to change because you pray that your test, that there's a test that shows it's not there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, earlier this week, we did the celestial mansion practice that promises this, quote, good to recite this mantra before going to see important people or participating in important meetings where you want the people present at the meeting to listen to you and do what you say. Yeah, what's the mantra? Uh, <laughs> this mantra also helps in business and it brings wealth. And we're told to say this mantra and then that, just by saying that mantra, abracadabra, all these good things are going to happen. Okay. So would you share some examples of the language that you use when making prayers or aspirations? Okay, so I've, you know, I have my own uh, special feeling towards some of these requests. Okay, so like I said, many people may not agree, and some people may go, oh, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, okay, first to give the big picture. I think that... In every culture, and human beings, by and large, they want outside help. And when things get too difficult in this world, then if you think of a creator or a governor of the universe, a manager of the universe, then, you know, you have uh, a special line 
you know, to the complaint department <laughs> and, and the request department and that somehow they have the power to make happen what, you know, isn't going to happen otherwise. So some people like actively believe that. Some people, I think it's just the desperation of how horrible samsara is that in, in, they don't know, oh, there exists nirvana, there exists full awakening, there exists states beyond this. So they don't know that that's possible and they don't know that this whole mess is caused by our, our defilements. So they appeal to somebody who is higher, who they impute all these powers onto, uh, and who can make stuff happen and control things that we can't control. Okay. So I think that's kind of a human tendency, um, for beings in, in, in samsara that, that we do this. And especially if you, uh, grew up in a theistic religion. This is the core of it, is making those kind of prayers for this and that and the other thing, uh, and meeting the prerequisites for going to heaven. And you, you know, you've got to praise God. Yeah, most. Yeah, right. And give him the credit for everything that happens to you that's good. And whenever things happen that aren't good, you give the credit to the, to the devil, you know, to Satan and many people. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not Satan, it's, yeah, it's your neighbor. <laughs> you know, uh, so, you know, how, how do, you know, what is actually going on in, in Buddhist when we make prayers? And what's actually happening when we request a puja? Yeah. And, uh, you request a puja at a monastery. The people, the people doing the puja don't know you. Yeah. They don't know if you, you may ask them to pray for somebody who passed away or pray, pray for your good business. I mean, this happens all the time. You know, pray for somebody's successful business. But the people doing the, um, uh, the puja don't know you. And, you know, they may not be thinking of you when they're doing the chanting. They may be thinking of the bread and tea that's coming. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, what, what does it mean? And when we're asked, you know, recite this sutra so many times, you know, your, your teacher's life, you know, to make them live long, recite this text so many times or say this mantra so many times. It really, it does sound like magic, doesn't it? You know, and, and some people say yes, some people say no, but, you know, I told you about in, in Singapore how, uh, you know, they asked me, somebody asked me if I could give them their lucky number because that's what monks and nuns do. And the, there was a period of 
you know, a couple of centuries where the, uh, there was always a, a very hot, uh, Rinpoche in the Chinese court. Um, Kong, what was the name of that emperor? Konglong emperor, emperor. Anyway, one of them. Um, and, and the Tibetans, the emperor would ask the Tibetans to do pujas for the success of their military expeditions, for the wealth of the empire, for, you know, to calm a rebellion or, you know, whatever. So, so what's going on here? And, and I was thinking, you know, I don't remember reading in any text the Buddha saying that you, you know, that you should recite these things for somebody's specific worldly purpose. You know, maybe I'm missing something, but, um, you know, there, there are especially Mahayana, uh, sutras where they talk about the virtue you accumulate from writing the sutra out. Now that I can see, you know, you create some virtue because when you're writing the sutra out, hopefully you're thinking about it. You're also making the text available for somebody else to read and to benefit from it. You know, that's what they used to do before you would print books for free distribution is, you know, you write it out. So yeah, there I can see somebody's creating virtue. And when they dedicate, you know, you dedicate for all sentient beings, but you dedicate specifically for, uh, you know, somebody who's sick or whatever. And in my mind, dedicating for somebody who's sick or somebody who just died is very different than dedicating so somebody's business can go well or they have a good marriage or whatever. On the other hand, when people, you know, because we get requests to pray like that uh, a lot. So uh, when I do dedicate for th- for those people, I always sneak in another dedication that they didn't ask for, which is that they meet the Dharma, that they have faith in the Dharma, that they meet qualified teachers, and that they practice well. So... Uh, they're not asking me for, for that dedication, but I sneak that one in. Um, you know, yes, I, I pray for their business and, you know, may they meet the Dharma and may they develop renunciation of samsara and so forth. Okay. Um, so that's, that's how I do it. Um, but also, you know, this thing about doing pujas and ceremonies and praise, prayers and things like that. Um, you know, very often in, in Asia, well, here too, um, yeah, thinking that my prayers will make somebody else have a good rebirth. You know, and like I always say, help them to create virtue while they're alive. But I really see this all the time, you know, that somebody does some kind of practice or they do some chanting, but when in their lives, but when somebody dies, then it's full on, you know, and doing a lot of chanting and, and making a lot of offerings and, and so on. After the person has died, thinking that, 
well, I'm not sure what they think. You know, to tell you the truth, they could be thinking I'm creating virtue by making these offerings and dedicating it for those people. They could be thinking like, well, if I give an offering, the Buddha's going to do something for me. That kind of business mentality. And then you have the whole dynamic, too, of um, this is a big way that that monasteries get income, okay? And, uh, yeah, so, so that factors into it, yeah, in terms of, yeah, it's, it's a big way that income comes into the, the monastery. Uh, but also, from the side of the people um, who request prayers, yeah, they, the ones I've seen, because I've been there, you know, in different situations where people come and, uh, and request a lama or request a monastery to make prayers or do a puja. And they always bring an offering. Yeah. They don't just write an email and say, pray, please pray for so and so or please, please do this puja or whatever. They always make an offering. And I think that's because there's some understanding of karma that you, um, that you have, that you create merit when you make offerings to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Okay. So you create that merit and then you, you know, they do the puja or make the prayers. So all of that together, your creation and merit, their, their prayers or puja can go and help that person. Um, you know, when I think about it deeply, and, and they've done some studies that, that when people know that other people are praying for them, they do better in recovering from surgery or from an illness. Uh, so, you know, does that depend more on the person making uh, the prayer or on the person who's ill, knowing that other people are are behind them and rooting for them? You know, because I think when we know that other people are care about us, then you know our mind is more peaceful. We're less afraid, so you can recover easier. You know, or more quickly. You know, in terms of reciting this and that, bringing wealth to the Dharma Center, the monastery, I feel very uncomfortable with that. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this is the, the difficulty you have with when you, you wanted to invite generosity in Asia and doing things the way that they're used to, and I come in and say, no, we're not doing that, okay? Um, for one famous thing is in Asia, if you're building a temple, or at least in Singapore and many other places, you get people to give a certain amount for a brick, yeah? And then they can write their name on the brick, and that becomes one of the building materials for the temple. And so, you know, from the side of the person who's giving, they feel, you know, hopefully they feel, 
I'm making an offering to the Sangha and it will build a temple which will benefit people, you know. But we don't know if they're thinking that or if they're just thinking, well, yeah, I want to give and it's kind of good luck. And, um, you know, if I have some bricks with my name on it and the name of my family on it, that's, that's good. You know, something good will come to the family for that. You know, we, the people could be thinking who knows what when they do this. Yeah. Um, but there is the, the, an open door for worldly thinking. Yeah. So how much people really know how to think when they do this? Um, yeah. Is, is something to think about. And, you know, when it's, you know, recite this so many times. Personally, some people love that. You know, they get a message, recite this text so many times, and it will bring this, this, and this. Yeah, you get that message. I don't like that, okay? The reason is because... I have other virtuous things that I want to do, and I don't want to spend my time reciting a mantra or reciting a text over and over and over again. I want to, you know, meditate on this and that or, or you know, do this or that kind of, you know, something. Yeah, but I've got to spend my time doing this because somebody said to do it, but I don't get anything out of it. Of course, that shows you the level of my mind. Maybe if I, you know, did these things, and oh, yes, I'm really, you know, yeah. My teacher's going to live long because I'm reciting this sutra, this mantra again and again and again. But wouldn't my teacher live long if I'm putting into practice what he taught? Why, why does it have to be just reciting this X number of times? What about just taking seriously the teachings that I've received and trying to, to practice them. Yeah. They, and when people request things, they never request that you sit there and meditate silently for a certain period of time on a topic. They never do that. You're always supposed to be chanting something or reciting something as if, you know, that that's the only way but you know and and you can get understanding from chanting and reciting and doing that in a group gives a certain amount of energy that's really wonderful okay but wouldn't it be nice if you know your teacher said i'll live long if you all met it you know or not all live long like they have a choice over it but you know it will help you know, my, extend my life. If the students meditate on, on the disadvantages of self-centeredness and the benefits of cherishing others, you know, so I want everybody every day to sit down, you know, for, for, you know, two months and 15 minutes every day meditate on that. How come we don't get requests like that? For me personally, sitting down and meditating on that, I think would change my mind much more than, than doing a puja, you know, but that's just me, you know, maybe, you know, other people are different. And, and when I, oh, you like that too. But, um, 
you know, and when I suggest that that sometimes, uh, you know, doing these pujas, okay, if somebody has died recently, you know, their mind's in the bardo. So when I get requests to pray for these people, I don't go, may this, may that. I kind of give instructions like I'm talking to them. You know, you you know me. <laughs> Tell everybody what to do. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I sit there and I go, you know, Sonja, just let relax. Let go of everything. Don't cling on to friends or family or your body or your position. Just let go. Take your compassionate heart. You know, make a strong aspiration to be born where you can benefit sentient beings, where you can meet the Dharma and fully qualified Mahayana and Vajrayana teachings and teachers and practice well and have faith. And, you know, it's like in my mind, it's like I'm giving them instructions and talking to them. And I find that much more uh, fulfilling from my side than just say, you know, may they have a good rebirth. Or, you know, I recited uh, such and such 20 times, you know. twenty. I recited 20 malas of the 100-syllable Vajrasata, you know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, okay. So I'm wondering if this is just, you know, differences in personalities, um, you know, because in so many ways, in you know, through through quite a number of years, I kept feeling like, you know, I don't have very much faith. And my uh, my Dharma brothers and sisters, you know, from the same teachers, they have so much faith. They get a request to do these mantras, they're right at it. Request to read these texts, they do it. They're always, you know, my guru's a Buddha, my guru's a Buddha. Oh, look what they did. This is so wonderful. They did that, da 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 da, da. And singing the praises and everything. And I'm sitting there going... You know, um, yeah, teach me something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, and I'm not all in, enraptured with, you know, this and that and going around, you know, saying to everybody how wonderful they are and, and, and reciting all these things and feeling like I don't have very much faith. All these, my Dharma friends are like so full of faith doing all of this. You know, what's wrong with me? And then years and years and years went by. And then I looked around again. And most of them had disrobed, you know, or the lay people I didn't see anymore. I, I was not the only one, but there were just a few of us still, you know, in, involved in dar making Dharma our life full time. And I thought, maybe I don't lack faith. <laughs> you know, if I did, I wouldn't be here today. But my faith doesn't look like everybody else's faith. Yeah. And I kind of sound like a heretic saying some of these things, you know. 
show. Um, yeah, so that's let's have more of a, what other people think right now. And I'd really like Geshe to... <laughs> <laughs> so you all heard me. <laughs> you don't have to go first, Geshe-la. You can if you want to, but... I did, you... with loud yeah. laughter. <laughs> so... so. Yeah? Okay. I usually see... Uh, doing the pujas, uh, I have myself been in a situation where I have so much commitments to do, and they are taking much. Yeah, I have myself been in situations where I felt like, oh, there are so much commitments to do that I just barely do them, but not with the intended. Uh, purpose behind it, which is to revisit bodhicitta six times a day, uh, six times 24 hours, and re renew the spirit of refuge six times a day. So there is the purpose behind it, but the commitments are so many that you hardly get any one of them to can really do it in a very sunk, sunk in way. So I have found out my own way of covering that by doing one very deep and uh, uh, kind of leisurely way uh, and then do the rest quickly by remembering what I had done before, mm -hmm. kind of quickly remembering it. But um, on the whole, I see prayers as uh, as something... Uh, that would be best utilized if we know and we are there, what we are doing, and bring our mind into it. Then we are naturally developing our mind as well as generating merit. And that merit is now your own heart-earned merit. Now you can dedicate. And, and, and uh, so that's what you dedicate and can have the effect can have the benefit. And uh, not so much uh, requesting, please do this, please do this, please do this, but generally kind of going through the refuge and bodhicitta like that, and then as looking in them as an inspiration, which is also a way of generating merit. And then you uh, dedicate it. But not everyone can do that. Uh, so some could be just barely able to read, they would not have the background, they could read, but at least come with a faith, uh, with a good intention. And that itself is a little bit of a merit that you can then dedicate. And then, as Venerable was uh, sharing, in terms of people who are in the parto state, almost like instructing, many of the, uh, the, the rituals themselves convey that. Except we say them very quickly, and so there is no guarantee whether they understand it. No, <laughs> particularly if the deceased one are not familiar with the puja, say, then they may not understand. And that's not a time when you really uh, get anything over their head, right? So I suggest uh, taking time in kind of 
expanding on it and saying it in your own ways. If you happen to know their language, say it in their language <laughs> like that. So that's a way of doing it. At the very least, uh, one generate the good spirit and the merit and dedicate that. So that's what His Holiness usually says. Don't just pray. Prayers won't work uh, like that. And some people confronted him saying, I've been praying for your long life. Do you mean that those did do not mean anything? <laughs> so, but then he wouldn't kind of just push push them away. He would say, what prayer do you do? What idam you do you do? And he takes interest and interest in it because it's very much dependent on how you do it. Otherwise, if you do it, then the sixth session yoga makes perfect sense. It's like having bodhicitta running throughout 24 hours, renewing it. And then everything it touches turns into gold. <laughs> and then you dedicate it. You have not just iron coins, but golden coins to dedicate. It will really go very far. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to add is sometimes I think these uh, the rituals for praying for people who have died like five years ago or ten years ago or whatever, um, and some people really, these rituals are quite important to them. Uh, but I think that person's already been reborn. <laughs> yeah? And so you're praying for the good the good life of the person that you knew and that person died they don't no longer exist there's a continuity but the continuity isn't even what you think because they've been dead for many many years and so i think also that the idea of many of these rituals especially around death are for the benefit of the grieving people not for the benefit of those who have died because in some way, the people who have died are like, they're completely left out of it. Uh, you know, in some way. Because what is the big thing? Everybody gets together and, and you chant and you understand whatever you understand. And it alleviates your guilt for how you've treated that person when they were alive. And it gives you a, a, a good feeling of, okay, well, things happen while we're alive, but at least now I'm making up for it. So I think a lot of it is is for the benefit of the living, you know, and I don't know how much it actually reaches the people who are dead. In any case, I think prayer is directed towards people who are dead. You know, I think it kind of maybe gives them a lot like a little, you know, a better environment in their mind. If, you know, because I think you can communicate, not always with email and voices, but mentally, you know. Um, and so, it, it, the you know, the energy from the good wish can, can actually get to somebody and help them. But um, doing these many elaborate things you know, that cost a lot um, and be, be, you know, huge pujas and things like that for people who've died a, a long time ago.
Um, yeah, so I think it's actually these things are for the living. Yeah, and going to the grave and cre cleaning the, the grave of, you know, uh, that person's who knows where they've been born right now. You know, and I don't think they care about the grave, but I need to connect with them, and this is my way of connecting with them. But I phrase it in this way of, yeah, so that I feel like I'm doing something good. You know, I mean, that's the same reason why people die, and then no matter how how you related to them when they were alive and your family, when they die, you know, you get a really expensive cas casket, you know, and then that shows how much you love them and how much you value them. Uh, and so anybody been in, in the rooms uh, at a uh, a funeral home where you go shopping for caskets? Yeah, a couple of you. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know. They take your, oh, and here's this one, pure mahogany wood. Look how beautiful and smooth it is. And it has brass handles, you know. But this one over here, same mahogany, it has silver handles. And look at the cloth that will surround your loved one. You know, we can make it silk or satin or whatever. And... It's a business. It's expensive to die in America. You have to pay a lot for a funeral, you know, and pay a lot for that, the ground space. And, you know, and people feel like they're doing it for the dead, but I think it's more for the living. I guess what I first thought about is, um, for me, prayers are very personal mm -hmm. and have... Um, changed over the years and sometimes I think that um, if I have if I make a prayer that includes the whole thing everything then it's kind of I'm more in a line with reality the dependent arising everything I think mm -hmm. that that can be powerful and I think if a person has a huge mind Maybe they would know that, but where I am right now, I don't know that I know that. But I have a belief that if I can do a prayer that is very personal and very heartfelt and that takes into consideration the whole, the whole scene, mm -hmm. then the chance of that having an effect um, is greater, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I agree about that part about transactions and those needs to, and it's very sneaky, the transaction, I do something and then I get something out of it and it's reinforcing the I, the self that gets bigger. And then also in my mind, there's so much that I do not understand. There's so much that I don't know. Um, like in, in America, not so much, but when I'm in Asia, there it's, it's in my face from the time I grew up, you know, you get mediums that go into trance and it's all, all around you and all these ghosts. And it's like that, the things that you cannot see, your five senses cannot, um, I mean, you cannot see directly, but 
there is you said there's a sense of existence that mm -hmm. is beyond what is immediately visible audible and then so so that the, my mind has a space for these things that I don't see them as supernatural, but I see them as like come something more than it's it's like when they talk about people flying <laughs> is uh, the way I grew up. It's not something supernatural. It's the ability to manipulate your winds to extend where yeah. you can do that. And I see that in the cats. Right, they get the ability to jump mm -hmm. so high. It's because parts of their winds have been released and that the ability is natural. <laughs> so it's a, an extension of something that is considered natural. Mm -hmm. And then like for prayers, the connection is um, something that, uh, something that I do not quite understand, but I don't reject for, like when Rotaba was talking about the Carmelite sisters praying for the unborn babies and how a lot of their prayers actually have very good results. And mm -hmm. those are things, 100%. <laughs> well, so, the, so that kind of things was, it's very easy for me to accept. Mm -hmm. I mean, just because of the way I've grown up. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the, the things that you are um, unfamiliar with and you get repeated and people believe and a lot of it is superstition. And but then it widens the mind so much that mm. there is space to accept like the unknown, yeah, until I understand it. Mm -hmm. So for me, and then prayers like Lama Chopa, when I started, like, what <laughs> one and a half hours of this, and then but then now, like, the words you know, starts to get meaning as I learn the Dharma. <coughs> mm -hmm. And it's um, the beauty of it comes slowly, slowly, and the meaning of it comes. Mm -hmm. So it's like from, I can see even from like the beginning of when I, first time I do it, Lama Chopa, it's like, oh, when are they going to hand out the offerings? You know, <laughs> to, <laughs> to now, like, it's just li little bits of it. Yeah. It's a trickle, you know, it's like a drop, little bit, little bit. So, so, so I have a lot of confidence yeah. in my mind's ability to slowly understand. It takes a long time, but yeah. yeah. So for me, prayers, it's like some, even if it's something that is, um, I'm resisting, a lot of time is because of the unfamiliarity of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Familiarization has a, yeah, a big piece in this. Yeah. There's a group of us who are reciting the King of Prayers uh, for Bill, who just died. Um, and for me, that's a prayer that was one of my favorites. I just like to recite it frequently or regularly because of the effect that it has on my mind. Mm. Um, it's so vast that it gets me outside of myself and the bigger picture of the situation that we're in in samsara comes to life and also um, what I'm moving towards, where I want to go, um, what really matters. And so um, it's not so much re reciting that for someone who's died in terms of I think that's going to necessarily affect them greatly. Mm -hmm. But it's like this is a way to honor that 
the pay respect or repay their kindness in a way for what that person has shown me by how I'm going to practice going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so that's more um, where these prayers or that that's how it affects. I have confidence in how that prayer affects my mind in terms of my practice. Mm -hmm. And therefore I, it's a meaningful use of my time. Whereas I think if people were, were gathering and were reciting something that I wasn't so connected to, I might not choose to spend my time that way because of the <laughs> impact that it had on my mind wasn't the same. Yeah. So I think I agree with Anna that it's very personal. Um, and yeah. And I know sometimes when there is these requests to do so many, recite this so many times or recite this prayer so many times, it's like, well, gives you something to do and if you're not quite sure how to spend your time at least you know That's what to true. do yeah you can put, pour your energy yeah. into that uh -huh. whereas like you said you've got many virtuous projects that you want to do it's like well great some people don't have that but they get these things like oh i can i can focus I can on that <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah yeah i'm sorry mm -hmm. I think that I agree with actually Venerable Pema about there being things that I can't see and don't know. But I, I mean, I, and I think we all have had the experience it, probably of a couple of times in dire situations, really starting to do the praises to Tara and things changed in that helped been tremendously. Right. So it was, was, I mean, I didn't pray Tara, please save me. It wasn't so specific, but I can attribute some of the conditions shifting and because of the maybe urgency or fervency or good karma relationship there. So I, I kind of think about the power of the mind being so, I mean, we know it's very powerful. And I think some of those prayers about the healing are also people who don't know they are prayed for get better. That's what was so phenomenal about that particular series of tests. Mm -hmm. um, so that I feel like we're contributing to the conditions, pure and simple. You know, if someone has the karma to be benefited, if I have the karma to be benefited from from that kind of request, then that is part of what helps that virtue to ripen in a positive way. And also, I think the thing about the puja is like when, when we do the Medicine Buddha puja, and there's 60 people online, Mm -hmm. Sometimes now I have them unmute themselves so that we're all doing the mantra together and there's just a cacophony of it, but you can hear this imagining the sound covering the universe, you know, yeah. and the, the feeling of our own, um, kind of aspiration for everyone to be well and healthy is in, is in, um, increased. I find it increasing mm -hmm. by the fact of sharing it together. So I also think that's part of the power of doing Pews is, oh, yeah. you know, those it binds a community. Together. Yeah, with the right mind. Or when we were doing those um, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha practice marathons to dedicate merit for the Buddha Hall, mm -hmm. people came on and just practiced their hearts out so that at least together we're generating merit. And <laughs> does it help the Buddha Hall? Well, I don't know, but a wave of support. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The wave of support is is huge. And we do tell people, the Buddha said, you will, the merit you generate from helping to build this temple will go with yeah. you as long as that temple is being used. Right. And I, I believe that energy goes Yeah, the, the Buddha said that. Does that mean the way to make that happen is only by saying mantra? Of course not. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. But I think it's also how we 
pray. Um, okay, I went to see my aunt who is dying, right? Um, and I had such a short time with her. And she has faith in Amitabha culturally, yeah, even though the family is not Buddhist. Mm -hmm. So we can do Amitabha practice together, visualize the golden light. But at the same time, I'm thinking my dad and my two cousins are there and they're thinking I'm a superstitious person. Uh -huh. But I can make an aspiration. I don't have I don't have the conditions right now to tell you who is Amitabha. This is not the time for me to tell you if you see dependent arising, you see the Buddha. It's, it's like not going to work. <laughs> you know, like, but I can make prayers like, may I be able to explain this to you? May I be able to explain, yeah, what does it mean to remember the Buddha? Why does that help you? Yeah. Why does that lead you to pure land the real miracle for me is that my cousins showed up for the public talk when i gave it i'm like <laughs> oh my goodness they came yeah yeah that's the next step right yeah. to slowly slowly piece it together so like when Pema said we plant the seed at the level we and others are at right. and then someday right. yeah actually what one time um Somebody, I was working with one young man who was dying, and uh, Rimshi gave him a, a practice to do, and so I kind of asked a little bit about that, and I, and I don't know if Rimshi was joking, I, I can't remember his exact words, but it was, the meaning was kind of like, well, you know, we're giving them this to do, and it it makes them feel better, but the real benefit is, because I was helping him, the real benefit is the you and the other people who understand what it means, they're deriving the benefit from it, not the person that you're asking to recite something so many times or do such and such, you know? So it's kind of like a, a, a way to trick people to create <laughs> virtue, you know? It is, because they won't do it for themselves. They don't have any faith that way. But if it's for somebody else, well, maybe. So I'll do that. And then that opens their mind or whatever. And for other people, they they hear that and they turn away and walk out. So it's like very individual. Someone who sends in prayer requests frequently, she... She explains, um, when I ask, well, not, you know, un unusually frequently, but uh -huh. she explains that when I ask for the Abbey for prayers, is coming from a place of respect for who you are in my life and in the world and hoping that the connection created when you pray for my loved ones helps them find the Dharma in future lives. All the while, I'm doing what I can to pray and benefit them too, acting also as a connection to the Dharma. Having the Abbey pray, I, it feels like there's extra power behind what I'm doing. Yeah, just briefly, um, from the side of doing the prayers here, I think it's uh, it's always a very nice time for me to to think about all the other people, because when we're doing the practice here, we're living here, we're doing all the things. Yeah, you know, we're living our life, um, but then just thinking about all the other people who request things or who need things, and they just pulls me out of my self-centered thinking. And yeah, in that sense, from my own practice, I do like to 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 think of people and to especially make time for that. Okay. I do remember in one of the texts, particularly this text called, I used to 
have an English. Sometimes it's called the the scripture of examples by Potova, which is a series of examples on Lamrim. I think there a commentary on that quotes uh, Atisha in in uh, explaining how prayers work uh, on the basis of connection. And that connection would be either a material connection. That's why when they offer something, now they create a connection. It's like a new connection line has been uh, established. Now communication can take place in terms of marriage, transferring, and whatnot. And then the other one is biological relationship. And then the other one is spiritual religious relationship. So because of those relationships, uh, the prayers that others do uh, can benefit. And it says somehow, uh, because in a way, from a Buddhist perspective, we are all, all connected, right? It is quite interesting to see, even evolutionarily, we're all connected. We come from one ancestor. <laughs> but uh, in a way, we're all connected. So there should be a kind of a, uh, what do you call, a limit in terms of where there's a connection. What, uh, how far that, con that connection could go and benefit. So it's such as seven lives, seven generations of, oh, yeah. yeah, within seven generations of connection, be that through biological or through monetary, monetary material, or through uh, spiritual, then yes, prayers can uh, benefit them. Of course, when done properly, with, depending on that, the degree of benefit will increase. But uh, I just recall to that. Thank you. Uh, I think it does differ a lot according to the family you're brought up in, the culture you're brought up in. Because I was brought up in a very scientific one, and it was like, <laughs> you know. Was a question that I had because in the Lambrim Chomo they mentioned blood relation, connection, and also spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to the idea of all sentient beings has been my mother since beginner's time, how does this fit in? Yeah. Yeah. And then second one is that um, there's this, um, I'm not sure is it um, um, superstitious or what? They say that if you dedicate or married, you received seven married and they receive one. But I, I'm always having this question of what is the basis? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. You have these kinds of statements and what is the source? And what's, what's the reason behind that? How can you show that? Yeah. Or again, is this something that keeps a family bound together? Is it something good for the individual growing up thinking, oh, there's all these ancestors before me and it's because they did this and they did that that I have the fortune that I have now, so therefore paying respect to them or making offerings to them is reciprocating. Yeah, and so people feel like that. Oh yeah, the, the relative is getting it, yeah. And whether they're actually getting it or not, it it helps the person who's who's making the offering. One thing I appreciate about the Jewish faith that I learned through my cousins 
is how much they have these kind of rituals and things that they that happen when there are these huge transitions in people's lives. And I feel that way about these prayers. I feel like I I I, I like the power of prayer for people. I don't have the need to know the mechanisms, but I, I think of it mostly for the living. And the, what I love about that is my experience is that, you know, some people's lives are very tragic. And when these transitions happen in families or cultures or cities or whatever, when these things happen, it's, I think that, that something in turning your mind this way with other people can help the social fabric from not falling apart. Yeah. I mean, families, individuals, cult, you know, societies. Mm -hmm. I think we have a need for something psychologically. Yeah, that brings us together in times of distress. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's dedicate.